Welcome to the Daryl Smith Podcast Show. Our voices, our views, our generation. Let's conversate. Hello, everybody, and welcome today to a new episode of the Daryl Podcast Show. Today on December 14th, 2020. Hard to believe it's 11 days away to Christmas, and more importantly, 17 days away to the end of this very eventful year, to say the least. So today, I have a, my guest on the show is Miss Claudia Reinhardt Johnson. She's a singer slash also music educator that does private music lessons for individuals in her house. And first of all, I want to thank you for coming on my podcast show today. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. You're welcome. And I, just real quick, I would let the audience know, I met you back all over three years ago. I called you one day. I was yeah. at Colectivo in Wauwatosa in the village. And I told you about, I was thinking about doing my radio show or podcast. Yeah. It was three years ago. It took a little while, but uh, it came through fruition this year. Now, this is my 11th and 12th episode I'm actually recording today. That's fantastic. It's been there since August, and I thank you for coming on again because I told you, I thought about you because you know when I started this podcast, I said, I told Claudia about this three years ago. I'm going to have her on at some point. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I like being here. You're welcome. And thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. My first question is for you. Can you tell the listeners of your background and how you became a musician and music educator? Okay, so I... I started singing when I was a kid. My mom was an opera singer. Everyone in my family sang. We all studied, took instruments. We all studied one or two instruments as kids. And I started taking classical voice because that's all that was available to me when I was about 13. And then I ended up going to college for, and I did a lot of musical theater and I was involved in theater companies as a kid. And then I went to college and went to Syracuse as a vocal performance major. I discovered in my first couple of years that I really wanted to do contemporary music and not classical music. <laughs> so I switched my major to business, which has helped me throughout my life. And I kept singing, but I just played with bands. And then when I got out, I moved back to New York. And then I moved into the city right away and started working as a singer. And what I learned early on was that I had been trained classically, and it's a very different path than being trained contemporary. But there weren't a lot of contemporary teachers. So I kind of bumbled around a little bit with some teachers and I subsequently working with an R&B coach ended up with vocal damage. Oh. Yeah. I started to get a callus on my vocal cords. And at that point, I was working roughly seven nights a week as a singer in New York. So by that point, I was singing in a big band. I was a regular singer at the Rainbow Room. I probably did about 20 to 22 years of just as a professional singer, doing jingles, studio work and live performance. And that's how I made my living. So having a vocal nodule was not a great situation for somebody who buys milk and pays their rent by their voice. <laughs> yeah. So, so I ended up finding a teacher who specialized in vocal health. And I worked with him for five years as a vocalist because by that point, I was starting to record my record and I was singing so much and my vocal cords were just constantly being worked. And then I kind of apprenticed under him for five years and then took classes at Columbia Teachers College just to learn about the instrument and what the damage sounds like, what the damage looks like, that kind of stuff. And in a nutshell, I worked as a vocalist and then I eventually started teaching, which I didn't really think I would ever do because I didn't think I would know enough. And my teacher basically kind of pushed me into it because he said, look, you actually do this. You go out and you sing seven nights a week. And sometimes you do two gigs in a day and you do five gigs in a weekend. And if anyone knows how this works, 
and how to keep the voice working so that on Monday morning, if you get called for a jingle, your voice is working, which was important. That's a lot of money. Yes, it is. That could be a national thing or it could be a local thing and it's $500, but it's $500. And as a musician in New York, you're hustling all the time for work. I've been in New York before, but I went out there back in 2008, so after post 9-11. So at that time when you were in New York in the late 80s and early 90s, how was the vibe of New York City compared to now? Was it a different vibe back then? Oh my God, night and day. Night and day. The 90s was an amazing time in New York. I believe that. I believe that. For music. I mean, jazz music. And you couldn't walk in the village without just seeing artists everywhere and musicians everywhere. I mean, those areas of New York now that are all like built up and there's cashmere shops every other (laughs) window, those are all dives. And you'd run from one gig, you'd be doing a gig in one corner club and your drummer ran out as soon as the gig was over to run to do another gig. Like that's how it was. You were constantly working. There was just so much creativity. Everyone was writing, everyone was playing. It was amazing. And I was doing club date work, which is different. The club date work is hired singer work. So you're independent contractor. You're usually through an office that has like a number of bands that goes out and does private function gigs. So you're doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and fundraisers. And those are the gigs that pay. So on average, I would get about six or $700 per gig. So I was putting away money. And I was with the union. I was with the musicians union. So I was getting pension. I was getting insurance. It was a good time. You worked a lot. I would do a gig and work till two in the morning and then maybe even go run and do a recording session at three. And you were doing it. You were, hey, we were young. We were, you know, and to not have to work a day gig. I mean, I worked a day gig for a lot of years and I worked seven days a week for like six years straight. I did gigs all weekend. I would do gigs Thursday night all the way through Sunday night. And I would work a part-time gig at a merchant banking firm from 8.30 to 1 every day. As a regular worker? Regular worker. Oh, wow. I wasn't a merchant banker, but I was like an associate assistant and I would do all this stuff. And it was great for me because it was there 8.30 to 1 and I would leave and I didn't have to think about it. And I got a (laughs) paycheck on the 15th and the 30th because come July, there would be no gigs and you'd be sweating it out in July or come February, there'd be no gigs and you'd be sweating it out in February. So you hustled and then 9-11 happened. And everything everything changed. changed. Everything changed. I mean, it happened on the Tuesday. I was in Manhattan. I had to walk home. It took me five hours to get home. That's a whole other podcast there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can imagine on that 9/11 one. 9-11 podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I sang at the Rainbow Room on that Thursday and that Friday and that Saturday. And I probably sang God Bless America about 25 or 30 times in those three days. And a lot of the servers who worked at Windows on the World, which was top of Trade Center, also worked at the Rainbow Room. Subsequently, I knew quite a few of them because I worked at the Rainbow Room three nights a week for like three years. Okay. So I knew a lot of the servers and the maitre d's. And so I wasn't in a deep relationship with these people, but I saw them every week and they were always very friendly and it was rough. It was very rough. And after that, we just started... My husband's a jazz musician. Like he went from going to Europe 18 times a year to 15 times a year to then I went down to 10 and then I went down to like six. And that's where he made a lot of his money and gigs started drying up and there wasn't as much. And then, of course, you know, as you're getting older as a woman in the business. And by that point, I, I just started to get into teaching. I had a couple of friends who came to me and said, would you work with me? Okay. So you started around 2001, 2002 is when you started doing the music educator part, right? 
Yeah. Let me see. My daughter was born in 2003. So it was about 2004 when I got into it. Okay. Yeah. So last 16 years now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I worked with somebody else and I worked with her for a little bit. And then I had a couple of other people that worked with her as well. And I knew from outside vocalists and teachers I knew that I really liked and I respected. Because to teach contemporary voice is a whole other thing. And there weren't a lot of people doing it in New York. And there weren't a lot of teachers focusing on vocal health. And because I had had that experience and I had walked into a vocal teacher that subsequently hurt me, I was very, very careful before I hung out my shingle and said, I can do this. My teacher kept saying, you could be doing this. And I'm like, I don't want to hurt anybody. (laughs) It's a big thing. Because once you hurt a vocal cord, once you do damage, damage is there for life. I still have it. It hasn't gotten worse, but it'll never go away. So it's like pulling a limb. You'll always have that sensitive ankle from flipping your ankle when you're playing basketball or from a torn hamstring or that's there for life. You'll always kind of know it's there. The same thing with a vocal cord. I believe that. Next question I have for you is that what genres of music have you either performed or have studied in your career? Well, I started out in classical, which was very, you felt very fulfilled when you finished it because it was not easy work. But after reworking my voice and changing it. I wasn't doing classical anymore. And I've done literally, you name it, I've sung it, maybe except for maybe Gregorian chant, I think. I have done it all. Because when you do club dates, club dates, which are bar mitzvahs and weddings and stuff like that, you do everything. So you could do standards, which I did a lot of big band work. So a lot of standards and swing and 40s and 30s, 40s and 50s. A lot of disco. Oh, yeah. Disco songs are the best. They're timeless. You really have to be on top of your game to sing disco tunes. Yeah, because it's very up-tempo, like pump the verse of R&B, as they say. Oh, yeah. And even like those 60s, like all that R&B, all that Motown stuff, it's vocal acrobatics, without a doubt. I mean, disco music and those singers really could sing. They really had amazing voices. It's not like when you got into Top 40 and oh, like yeah. the late 90s where oh, yeah. once they discovered autotune, once Madonna... That's the standard for auto-tune. It changed everything. Well, that's very true. But auto-tune actually started with uh, Roger Troutman and Zap. But that's another story. The auto-tune, or, <laughs> that's the early, late 70s, early 80s. But Right. But yeah. that was that sound they put on the microphone. Yeah, I yeah, think, yeah, more yeah. Than. She was the one they were like, oh, my God, this girl really can't sing. We got to fix it. Yeah, that's true. She wasn't a bad singer, but she wasn't a great singer either, me and the Madonna. No. You know, and the thing is, it's not like Dylan was this amazing singer, but the man could deliver a story. Same with Johnny Cash. So you said about Johnny Cash, he can really sing. He was a great storyteller, a great singer. Johnny Cash, what, it's not like he had this incredible voice. It's not like he was like Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra or George Michael with this amazing instrument or Stevie Wonder. But he had a sound that nobody else had. And he could deliver a song that would make you weep, you know? Very true. So You are right about that. So it's subjective, but there's got to be something special. Whereas when you got in the late 90s, early 2000s, anybody who just wanted to sing a song would just record and they'd fix the auto-tune. And that's where the quality of music, I think, really started going down, in my personal opinion. Yeah. I mean, and I did a lot of live singing. So, I mean, as much recording as I did, I did so much live and I sang everything. So you'd wear the hat for the standards and the swing tunes because you want to emulate Ella Fitzgerald. You want to emulate Billie Holiday. You want to, like, get that phrasing and that kind of thing and really learn how to deliver it like Sarah Vaughn. But in 10 minutes, you could be singing Barracuda (laughs) by heart. So you had to be able to do a lot. And I actually think there were a lot of people, a lot of singers I knew who would kind of like 
Poo Poo, the club date singer who did these gigs. You know something? It paid my rent and paid my rent well. That's good. And I knew a million songs. Like, I have a million songs in my head. Well, that's good. That's good. And I know them. That's so good. it served me very well. Hey, whatever pays the bills is all the most important thing to pay your bills and do what you got to do. Absolutely. And my husband always said, if you have a black dress and a microphone, you're going to be fine. I believe it. I do agree with about that. <laughs> Next question is, what made you get involved into being a music educator and provide private lessons? Well, as I said a little bit before, my vocal coach was very instrumental in telling me that he's like, look, you could really make a difference because you do this work. So you know when you're working these exercises and this technique, how it's going to serve you and how to, when you have five gigs on a weekend and you're singing four hours per gig, and chances are your Saturday night gig, you're going to do an hour and a half overtime. And your last song might even be like, I will survive. And you've got to nail it. You know how to train your voice to be able to handle all this. So eventually I started teaching. I met with a colleague of his who had a studio where she had other teachers. And then she made me train with her for a year, which made no sense because I actually ended up knowing more than her. But that's besides the point. And I realized that I didn't know how much I knew until I started teaching. And then I didn't know what kind of teacher I was going to be until I started teaching and realized I needed to figure out five different ways to explain to somebody how to breathe properly and things that I had not learned properly from anybody until I got to my teacher. So once I got in, I was kind of hooked because it was, I always felt that in New York, and I'm not saying this, it's a generalization, but because I had met plenty of singers who were supportive and wonderful to one another, but it was doggy dog. Like, you've got a problem, I'm going to take advantage of that and I'm going to knock you off your pedestal. You know, there was a lot of that. So I felt like it was important to be that vocalist who could share valuable information and make a difference because nobody did that for me. And I say this to my students now, I became the teacher I always wanted. Like my teacher was wonderful, but he never did performances. Not that I needed performances because I was working anyway. But as a teacher with younger students and, or students who had never actually performed, it's important to give them an opportunity to do that and understand what it feels like and maybe do it with a safety net for a little bit so that they get comfortable so that when they do go out and actually do their first performance, it's not like, it's not train wreck. Because that'll end that process. Yeah, that makes sense. My last question for you for this episode here is, are you currently working on releasing a new CD now or in the future? I am. I have about nine songs that are mostly in the can in the studio. I was working on it for about a year and a half, two years, because I released an EP two years ago. I released a four-song EP in 2018. And I did that because those songs, I just needed to get them out. And I have another eight that are ready. But because of COVID, I stopped going to the studio and, and everybody's jobs and money, like money changed. So it's not like I could pop into the studio at 75 an hour. So now my plan... <laughs> Well, my plan was to like just start doing it on my own because paying a band was so expensive. I was just going to start playing acoustic on my own of my own songs. But now my plan is basically I'm going to go in when I'm able to, when COVID is kind of cleared up and finish one, finish one, release it. Then go back in, finish another and release it rather than feeling I need to do like a record, an album, because it's just too hard and it's going to take a long time to get all that done and raise the money to finish it up. Yeah. Yeah, you are right about it. As people understand, it's very expensive to do a full album. And do it correctly. I mean, a lot of people make records in someone's basement, and that's kind of a different... <laughs> for me, that's kind of a different 
approach. Like I want excellent musicians on my records. I want the best engineer. And I want an engineer I have a relationship with, that I have a connection with, that we can really communicate. That's why I record this podcast in the studio here in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, may I say, with Sir Dippany Labs over by Mayfair Collection off of Harbor 100 in Burline. Oh, nice. I produce in a professional studio where I pay the producer to produce the show for me and edit it. I pay the money because I want to make sure it sounds good when it comes out, when it airs. Absolutely. You pay for what you get. Yeah, because, I mean, it's one thing to whip it out in someone's basement. Yeah, but it's, I want to listen to, even when I, mean, I go back and listen to my first record, which was 2001, I think. It holds up, man. Like, the instruments, the production, it holds up, and that's what I want. I'm not making 17 records in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, Quality is better than quantity. Yes, I agree. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, Claudia, thanks a lot. We're going to end this segment here. Hold tight. We'll be back for the second part of this interview in a few moments. 